Good to see uh, all of you, I think. Yeah, all of you. It's good to see all of you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Reed. I serve as the campus pastor here. And as Nathan mentioned, we are, we are thrilled to, to be with you this morning. Uh, why we gather is we, we do believe that Jesus is our resurrected King. Uh, and the book of Revelation, as we've been journeying through, is a great reminder of that truth that centers us as a people uh, to equip us to be the people God has called us to be. Um, if, you were, if you were with us yesterday for uh, the Common Good Conference that we hosted here, we had the simulcast uh, conference that was sent out around various locations in the country, uh, you no doubt were blessed by uh, many of the speakers we had, uh, not the least of which uh, was Karen Ellis. And so Karen is with us this morning and has graciously agreed to, uh, to join us as we enter in and continue on through Revelation. Uh, but, but yesterday, Karen shared the, the, the beauty, the importance, and the necessity of the church in our time and age, the opportunity that the marketplace, in a sense, is providing the church to, to fill in the gap in terms of, of apprenticeship and mentorship. And it's a great opportunity for the church to be the church in the places God has called us. And so it was an incredible message. Um, and this morning, uh, we are going to be blessed and graced uh, by Karen's wisdom as we continue on in Revelation. And so what I'd like to do is, is introduce Karen and then share a few uh, words from Revelation. But, uh, but Karen is the director of the Center for the Study of the Bible and Ethnicity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Atlanta, uh, where she is also the Robert Canada Fellow for World Christianity. She is passionate about theology, about human rights, and global religious freedom. Since 2006, uh, Karen has collaborated with the Swiss-based organization International Christian Response, uh, and she travels internationally advocating for global religious freedom. Karen holds a Master of Art in Religion from Westminster Theological Seminary, a Master of Fine Art from the Yale School of Drama, and is a PhD candidate in World Christianity and Ethics at the Oxford Center for Mission Studies in England. And so basically, yeah, that deserves an applause. Basically, if... To synthesize it, Karen has more degrees than Fahrenheit, and is smarter than all of us. And so, uh, but, but it truly is a joy to have you with us, uh, Karen, and, and I'm honored and blessed uh, to be with you. And so uh, Karen has asked me just to share a few words from uh, Revelation as, she, as she's kind of coming in the middle of our series. Uh, she asked if I would frame the context of this letter to the church at Ephesus. And so I'm, I'm, I'm honored to share the stage with you and happy to oblige. And so uh, with that being said, kind of what I plan to do is just give us some context of what this letter is about to the church at Ephesus, frame it in the context of the rest of the letters, uh, and then really just get out of the way uh, so that Karen can come and share the beauty of the, the implications of what this truth is for us as a church. And so I want to put the ball in the tee and let just Karen knock it out of the park. So that's my, that's my plan. Uh, but with that being said, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And so hear the word of the Lord, Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as you're seated, let me pray for our time as we continue on. Father in heaven, we do pause in this moment, declaring and believing that we trust in the work of the Holy Spirit, who opens our eyes to see truth to open our hearts to, to love as you have called us to love. And so, Lord, in this time, would you speak to us? Would you reorder our loves and our allegiances that we might see Jesus as king and live in light of that truth in all aspects of our lives? And so, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If Jesus wrote a letter to Christ's community, what would he, what would he say? Because in some ways, that question is really what we should be asking when we come to this portion of Revelation. Even, even though it sounds like kind of a Christian icebreaker type question, it's a very sobering question. What would Jesus say to Christ's community? What would he encourage us with? What would he challenge us on? What, he, what would he rebuke us for? What would he call us to? Now, the letter to the church at Ephesus is the first of seven letters in the book of Revelation. And, and these are real churches. They're not metaphorical. They're real churches in real cities comprised of real people in real time and space. And just like the letters in the New Testament, these letters are written to a particular church, but are meant to be read by all churches for their own edification and growth. And this first letter to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2 is of no exception. And in fact, I would venture to say that of all the seven churches, Christ's community has the most in common, I think, with the church at Ephesus. There's aspects of all of these churches that I think we can identify with, but Ephesus, uniquely so, and I'll explain why in a minute. But what I want to do in in kind of setting the stage for us, I want to give some context, two things in particular, to understand these letters, how they're structured, so that we can better understand them this morning and as we continue on through Revelation. And the first thing that I want to point out is this. Each letter to the churches begins and opens up with a description of Jesus that is pulled directly from Revelation chapter 1. If you remember in Revelation 1, there's all this beautiful imagery and symbolism of who Jesus is, and that imagery comes back into all of these respective letters, and they are not just random references. Each declaration of who Jesus is at the beginning of each letter is a unique truth about Jesus that we must believe, that that church must believe, to address the particular issue that is plaguing that church. And the church at Ephesus, we see this description of Jesus in chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right, and these are the words of Jesus, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is pulled directly from Revelation 1, verses 13 and 16. And last week, Nathan showed us that this this symbolism, this imagery of the lampstands and Jesus walking among them is a way to say that Jesus is present with, is at work in and among his church as a people scattered throughout the globe. Now, this is a reality that is true and has to be believed by the church at Ephesus uniquely to remedy the issue that is plaguing them, which we'll get to in a second. So the first thing is that every letter begins with this opening description of Jesus that we must uniquely believe to address that particular issue. The second thing to point out about these letters is that they're written from Jesus addressed to the church, uh, the, the angel of that particular church. Every church has its own angel, which sounds kind of strange. I get it. 
I mean, it probably, we're probably asking the question, like, I mean, are, is a real angel literally getting this letter and delivering it like, like first century UPS and, and giving this letter to the church? Does every church have an angel? Does Christ's community have an angel? And we're one church in five locations. We have one church or, or one angel or five angels. I don't know. These are the questions that nerds like myself ask. But, but in all seriousness, when we look at the story of the Bible, as angels are referenced, they're always a description of, a representation of God's presence with his people. And so as we see the churches in Revelation having an angel attached to them, it's a way of saying that God's presence is uniquely there among his people. And so the reference of an angel is a way of saying that the church in that city, while they find themselves inhabiting a particular city, Ephesus in this case, their first and foremost citizenship is in the, ki- the kingdom in the city of God. It, it would be like, this is the metaphor, it would be like our president writing a letter to a group of American expatriates in Beijing, China. And he's wanting to communicate something to them, but he sends the letter via the American diplomat at the U.S. Embassy. And this diplomat is a reminder to this community of Americans in Beijing that while they find themselves living in one city, a different country altogether, they are actually citizens of another country. The angel of each church is like that diplomat, representing to the church their true citizenship is in the kingdom of God. It is not that they are to neglect the responsibilities as citizens of the city of Ephesus, for example, But what this means is that the church of Jesus Christ, every local church is a heavenly embassy, if you will, comprised of people redeemed by Jesus who were called to make whatever city they live in look more like the new city of Jerusalem, which is the picture of heaven and earth made one at the end of the book of Revelation. And particularly, the church at Ephesus is called by Jesus to uniquely do something to be a faithful and fruitful presence in that city for the good of the city and for the glory of Christ. And what Jesus calls the church at Ephesus to do is to embrace both orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Now, in addition to those being words that I say to impress you, they are also words that communicate the deficiency in this church. Orthodoxy is a simple word, a fancy word that describes right thinking. Orthopraxy is right living. And the Ephesian church was a very thoughtful church, a very doctrinally astute congregation, so much so that they were able to identify false teachers and say what was true and what wasn't. We see that in verse 2. I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. You see, the church at Ephesus knew all the answers. They went to Sunday school every week. They, they knew everything. They had the knowledge. And yet, Jesus is rather explicit as the letter continues that right thinking is not the totality of what a church for the end of the world must be. It is no less than that. But a church's right believing must produce a right living and a right loving. Which is precisely why Jesus has these very bold words to the church at Ephesus and I think to us as well. Look with me at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. To follow Jesus as king means that we must thoughtfully be able and ready to answer the, the questions of our neighbors. But more than that, it also means that we must be able and ready to lovingly serve the needs of our neighbors. It must be both. We cannot just have orthodoxy without orthopraxy. And the church at Ephesus has lost that connection. 
It is not enough for us to be a people who believe and proclaim these truths on Sunday and yet fail to live them out on Monday. And I think this is precisely the heart of the matter as Jesus pens these words, this letter to the church at Ephesus. And I believe it is a letter that we should read very carefully and thoughtfully ourselves. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, and if I'm honest with myself, I think this church at Ephesus describes Christ's community in some way. We're a thoughtful church. We think deeply, and we take pride in that in, in a good way. But, but sometimes, if I'm honest with myself, I know that my big head can get in the way of my loving heart and my skillful hands. And so the church at Ephesus needs to hear that it must embrace right thinking, but that right thinking must also produce a right living and a right loving. And so this is the letter penned to Ephesus, and it is a letter that we need to hear. And my hope is that this kind of sets the the foundation and the stage uh, that my sister Karen can build off of so that we might more faithfully and fruitfully live into what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. And so would you join me in welcoming Karen Ellis? Thank you, Pastor Reed. You know, my husband would say, uh, that's good preaching, you know. <laughs> I miss him this morning. He's my, my usual uh, amen corner. I can be in a civic center speaking, and I'll hear his amen. I'll be like, he's in row NN24. <laughs> he's like, did you hear me? And I'm like, yes, I knew exactly where you were. Since he's not here today, you guys have to try and make up for the volume that he can produce. <laughs> So don't be, don't, oh, hey, all right, you get it. Don't be afraid to speak back to me. Um, if the Lord strikes your heart, let it fly. <laughs> Honestly, I am so honored to be able to come and speak with you this morning. Uh, it's one of my greatest joys to visit congregations on their Sunday mornings. And hey, baby, <laughs> amen. <laughs> and to trade stories about what God is doing through history and around the world and among his people. Um, I feel like sometimes I'm adventuring through the churches, like this closes many circles for me when I have opportunities like this. I get to see a small window of what's happening around the world, and then I get to turn around and tell people what I've seen. So when I go to Rwanda in a couple of days, I'll talk about what I saw at the Made to Flourish conference because they they want to know, what are you guys talking about? What's God doing there? And when I go to Cape Town in a month and a half, the same thing will happen. And then I'll come back from Cape Town and I'll bring stories to my home church and say, hey, this is what's going on over there. And we'll find a common element that God is working and moving among his people in diverse ways, but in similar ways. Um, because we are one people throughout history and around the globe, and because the Word of God carries our story, I can drop in to a congregation on any given Sunday at a church like this one with a pastor who's faithful to preach the full counsel of the Word of God, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, I can find some relevance to where you are in the Scriptures to what's happening among God's people around the world. I've spent the last 16 years wandering around, sometimes landing in places and spaces with Christians who persevere in the midst of deep injustices for their faith. 
Uh, I work with two parachurch organizations, uh, and I've leaned in to listen to what are largely overlooked voices in our culture, uh, the voices of the Christian underground. And they give me a different perspective on the story of the people of God. I'm talking about places like China, Libya, Vietnam, Morocco, Egypt, Nigeria. Hmm. If you haven't heard just this past week, three Christians paid the ultimate price for their faith in Nigeria for their first love. Um, I will say their names because the mainstream media and sadly many of our churches will not say their names. Um, so their names are Mrs. Esther Katong. She was kidnapped and murdered by Boko Haram. She's the wife of Reverend Ishiaku Katong. Uh, and two brothers, Lawrence Dachijir and Godfrey Shakagam. Both of them are members of the Church of Christ in Nigeria in Plateau State. It's very hard. Every time I bring a message like this, I have someone whose name I can say. The world was not worthy of them. In the spirit of listening to the voices of the oppressed, I've sat as still as I can to hear the voices in the hearts of leaders where the name of Christ may be a little bit more tolerated than the underground or the hidden church, but only just so. I'm talking about places like uh, listening for the Shadrachs and the Meshach and the, and the Abednegoes in Pakistan and Afghanistan and India. And I've held hands with Iranian brothers and sisters who are watching political upheaval unfold in front of their eyes, and yet they still place their trust in their first love. They still trust the promise and power of revelation over revolution. I've traveled in the last two years personally to the rebel-held territory of South Sudan. I saw with my own eyes Christians who had survived in the bush for three years as they hid from the machetes of rebel forces. I watched them risk their lives to worship in a physical church for the first time in three years and watch them forget their circumstances for just a moment and irresistibly worship for six hours straight, even under threat of assault. These are the folks who remember their first love. They refuse to bow the knee to any other God but Yahweh. And they bolster my face. They challenged my priorities, and they caused me to question just about everything I thought I knew about the ongoing, ever-unfolding story of the people of God. They are living closest to the context that we have of the original context of the entire New Testament and the story of the people of God, a people persecuted and harassed for no other reason than that they bear the name of Christ, worshiping God in the way that he's asked to be worshiped. They're culturally diverse, but they're spiritually similar. And even in their cultural diversity, they're aware that together they comprise a different culture altogether. And I'm beginning to think 
that Christ followers are not a counterculture as much as we are an other culture. Not political or even anti-political or other political because God wants us to be involved in matters of the state. That's a part of our Monday business, right? But it's a different sort of politics based on the cross of Jesus Christ. And there's power in this other cultural, other political reality. It's a power that lies in powerlessness that somehow expressed among the nations all the people, all the tribes who are called by his name. And I know that I'm in Kansas City, so I gotta have an Oz reference. Okay. As I've served the global underground, sometimes I feel like Dorothy walking through the black and white door. You know that moment where she's, they, they get the close-up on the door and she opens it and it's Technicolor, right? It was a big deal back then, right, in the movies. She walks through that door into wonder that is Oz. That's how I feel when I open the Bible now, having been with these folks. It comes alive in vivid Technicolor. So I've spent 16 years looking into these communities, and certainly that technicolor colors the book of Revelation for me. And this letter to the church at Ephesus that Pastor Reed has so beautifully unpacked for us, all of these letters are meant to be words of comfort and encouragement and rebuke and challenge to a people who are persevering in the midst of a rising anti-Christian hostility. In places where being a Christian is either hard or downright impossible. And I can tell you that our comfortable Christian life sometimes makes it hard to see the story in this light. There are an estimated 250 million Christians around the world living under hostility. That's about a quarter of a billion people. 3,000 plus were martyred last year alone. And this is our family, family. So when we gather together on a Sunday morning and we turn to a text like the one Pastor Reed unpacked for us today, it just seems like an, uh, an appropriate time to discuss some family business. Can we talk? I mean, sister to sister, sister to brother. Can we talk? All right. Ephesus is in Central Asia, so I thought this morning I'd bring you a few stories from that region surrounding the idea of our first love. We love because Christ first loved us. Our first love. I believe that these letters in Revelation, including this one in Ephesus, are actually for all the churches including ours, across time and space and across geography. And isn't it funny how we kind of pick and choose which church we want to be? I mean, okay, everybody wants to be Philadelphia, right? Nobody wants to be Laodicea. Nobody wants, that's the church across the street. There's, there's something wrong with them. That's them. We're, we're Philadelphia. Actually, I'm persuaded that we are all the churches, and if Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then so are his promises and his challenges to the churches. He has promised to keep a people set apart for himself, a promise that he keeps from Genesis 
all the way to Revelation, from the beginning of time to the beginning of eternity in his presence. And he keeps that promise and echoes it throughout scripture in the one phrase, if I were to sum up the entire Bible in one phrase, it would be this one, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the story. When we take communion, that's the story. When someone gets baptized, that's the story. When I sit down for communion in my congregation and my pastor says, on the night he was betrayed, I'm like, ooh, it's story time. <laughs> this is the story in which we're all involved. So why do people leave their first love? Well, in this context, some of it is because Christianity is hard. It's not our comfortable Americentric Christianity. It's full of injustices in the midst of generous new mercies that can only be reconciled at the cross on the nail scarred, on the, the whip scarred back of Jesus Christ. Suffering for Christ is not as romantic as we can sometimes at a distance make it out to be. And Jesus himself, in one of his parables, gives us a picture of some of the reasons a Christian start out the gate with the seed of the gospel and they're running fast and they're running hard and then they run out of gas and they go back. Well, sometimes he tells us the evil one comes and his birds peck away the seed to death and they carry, the birds come and they carry it off and carry it away. And sometimes... The roots just weren't deep enough to survive the pressure and the persecution that came along with believing. And sometimes the external distractions, and lo, there be many. I, listen, I got the cell phone addiction myself. I know how it goes. Sometimes it's the distractions or the concerns for wealth that choke the life out of our first love. But some people feed that seed with the right things. Prayerfulness, staying close to the word of God and seeking wisdom and understanding that this one is the one who draws strength to persevere from his or her first love, even when it's hard. So back to Central Asia. The first story I wanna share with you is a story of a man that I had the pleasure of, the honor, of speaking with. He was a man, is a man, who had been incarcerated for two years in a prison for his faith. And he shared very candidly with me and another group of people about what that was like for his faith. And he said, I wish I could tell you all the right Christian things happened. He said, it's not a heroic story. He honestly shared, I faltered. It was hard. And in the first year out of the two that he spent incarcerated for his faith, he despaired even unto life and became suicidal several times. He said, after the first year, God showed him the valley of dry bones. And he said, not everybody makes it. Some people are like, in, in, in terms that he could understand, he said some people are like that, those lampstands that get taken away 
and they lose their witness. And he said that the Lord shared with him, if you're gonna do this differently, you need to think differently, you need to return. And he said he had a moment. And the second year was just as hard, but he was different. And his first love sustained him through that process. I can't even begin to imagine the horrors of the things that he saw, but his first love sustained him. The second story is of a Christian brother um, who I see on a regular basis, who uh, shared with me, we were sitting having dinner one night and I said, uh, so how did you believe on Jesus? And he said, he shared the whole story with me, how God drew him and drew him and drew him. And then he said, and then I believed and my family found out about it and my mother stabbed me three times. How did you come to faith in Jesus? <laughs> I was like, oh, it wasn't that dramatic. I just went down the aisle, you know. <laughs> he lives in this region where actually anti-Christian hostility is not, even though his mother was violent towards him, in his culture, it's actually social pressure. These are the birds that come and steal the seed. The social pressure is so great, and their anti-Christian hostility is so great. When conversion is taboo, they are, Christians are ostracized, they're cast out of their families, and in his words, they're seen as worse than drug addicts. They answer this hostility with what I describe as a productive Monday morning perseverance. Not just for Sunday, I gotta live the rest of the week. My Bible has to make sense on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I can't just check in on Sunday and leave it at the door. And he says that they are filled in these communities with a deep hope in Christ, their first love that drives out the fear of man and their lives are marked by this radical personal transformation and a communal discipleship that's so attractive to the people that are persecuting them that now they're willing to risk stigmatization to be a part of that community. They worship and they create these new families by welcoming young converts into their homes for several months. They're protected at first from that social pressure so that seed can grow strong. And they can face the negative public opinion once they return to society. They learn a trade because they're not gonna be able to get a job now that they're a Christian. So they learn a trade while they're in these homes. And they learn skills that help them make a living. The witness that they produce, again, is more than countercultural. It's other cultural altogether. And so the story of the churches and revelation that John saw continues today as the church continues to be the people of God. My goodness, it's almost as if the word of God is living and active. <laughs> How about that? What might if Ephesus be trying to tell us today? I think we can all admit and agree that Christianity in America is changing. We are in small pockets turning away from thinking that there's salvation in politics or salvation in culture. And we're starting to become that beautiful, spirit-wrought, other political, other cultural reality. 
We're becoming less American Christians and more Christians in America, realizing there's no assurance of salvation in politics or cultural dominance, but only in Jesus Christ. And despite the chronic declarations of the demise of the American church from the voices that are secular, that the church is dying, she's not dying. She's becoming. The old school Bible teacher Vance Havner said that Christianity has always outlived her pallbearers and always will. A number of us in the church today see us, see the current moment for the opportunity that it is to walk more closely to the New Testament story of the people of God with our allegiance solely on Christ. All of our stories through history and in the contemporary world among all the ethnicities who believe on the name of Christ are bound up and rooted in the story of the people of the kingdom of God, a people created, set apart, kept and perfected by a covenant keeping God. And this is the message for which men and women are incarcerated around the world, for which men and women and children around the world die. It's the message on which we stand and by which we are saved, saved that love was fully demonstrated through Christ and while we were yet sinners he died for us according to the scriptures this is our first love the last few years have put us in the midst of many bizarre defining cultural moments a lot of valuable work has been done by people in this room Monday kind of love. You know, there was an Etta James song called Sunday kind of love. I want a Sunday kind of love. That what they were talking about yesterday at the Made to Flourish conference was a Monday kind of love. It's that, that, that Sunday love that bleeds over into Monday, right? As Christianity in America, not American Christians, experience our own soft cultural hostility toward the Christ who transforms now more than ever, the Spirit is calling the churches to return to their first love. Don't misunderstand me. I don't want anybody to walk out of this room and, I'm, and say that I said that American Christians are persecuted. We are not. I know what persecution is. We are not being persecuted. But we cannot deny that things are not as they have been in the past for those who profess the biblical transformative Jesus Christ. Our spiritual aunties and uncles come through Christ, come through the Christ-wrought bloodline of our own who have persevered in loving their first love. And today, I actually find myself encouraged by those who say that they are weary of a Christianity that's bound up in temporal things. It doesn't mean that it doesn't influence temporal things. It does, and it should but it remains bound up in the person of Jesus Christ, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our communities. Our spiritual ancestors from every tongue and tribe and nation have passed a kingdom ball forward to us. And the global church would love for us to reclaim our place in the story 
and take that ball and put our hands on it and pass it forward to our spiritual descendants. If Christianity is correct in history, today's unnamed on the margins will carry that kingdom ball forward to the waiting hands of future generations because God has promised that he will keep a people for himself. Those who are overlooked and often despised by the world are already passing it with costly prayer, costly discipleship, discipline, and I'm talking about that long kind of discipline, uh, discipleship, I'm sorry, that kind of discipleship that's long, that's, um, that's not the microwave type. I'm talking about a long walk in the same direction with somebody who's growing in the faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And faithfully practicing those actions that remind us of the story to whom we belong, the baptisms, the ministry of the word, the Lord's Supper. <laughs> if the thread that connects us historically and geographically is as strong as the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, then no cultural heat, whether it be from the political or cultural left or right, from progressive or conservative Christianity, no cultural heat can thwart or kill what God has promised to do, that he has kept, is keeping, and has promised to keep a people for himself from every nation, tongue, and tribe. There are quiet disciple makers on the ground who are guiding the hungry and the broken into freedom from systemic and cultural and relational dysfunction. We heard this weekend at the conference from those who are uh, themselves releasing people, the trafficker and the trafficked, people who are fighting for the freedom and salvation of the incarcerated, those who minister the transformative gospel of Christ to the most despised in our culture, who provide homes and means and resources for those who have none. This is the body. Those who choose to live sacrificially under a new identity in Christ that's not defined by their sexuality, but rather is now simply called redeemed. These are the folks who are passing the kingdom ball forward. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The Bible shows us how easy it is, story after story and age after age, to get off track. It happens. Look at Israel and Judah. My goodness. But the kingdom is spread through the power of our powerlessness. It's spread through loving that God-man who suffered on the cross, was buried, and early Sunday morning rose up with all power in his hand. Power to keep his people for himself because the Lord knows we cannot keep ourselves. Power to hold out and promise to his people his reward. To eat from the tree of life to be protected from the second death. No more tears, no more death, no more injustice, no more pain, no hunger, no thirst, only satisfaction and wholeness.
in glory. Wherever Christ is, there the overcomers will be. Those who remembered constantly their first love. Hmm. May we be found among them by his promise and by his grace. Let's pray. Lord, dear Lord above, God of mercy, Lord of love, please look down and see your people through. Lord, dear Lord above, God of kindness, Lord of love, please look down and see your people through. I believe that God puts sun and moon up in the skies. I don't mind the gray skies cause they're just clouds passing by. Lord, dear Lord above, God of kindness, Lord of love, please look down and see. See?